you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to dive in and talk about dogs and crumbs, and it's going to be pretty awesome. Well, it's good to be with you. If you're new with us, my name is Landon, and I uh, am thankful to get to be one of the one of the team members here. And Jeremy is right. We're going to dive into Mark chapter 7. Uh, we've been in Mark forever, and forever will be, I think. I have been wrestling a lot with this passage this week. Nate came to me um, about 10 days ago, and he's like, I can't wait until you get to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And I'm like, I've not read it. Why? And he goes, well, because I have no idea what it means, and it'll be great for you to just dive in and teach on that. And so on Monday, I read about it, and I was, or I read it, not about it. It's like, oh, cool. I have absolutely no idea what that means either. Jesus just totally seems like a jerk. And then on Tuesday, I read it, and I'm still confused. And so it's been a wrestling match, but I think a, uh, a fun one. And I think what Jesus is communicating and what Mark, on behalf of Jesus, is communicating in chapter 7 of this gospel is really crucial. It's really important. And in many ways, uh, this morning is kind of part two of, of last week as we really dive into the scriptures. And so we're going to go kind of on a unique journey, if you will, today. Oftentimes we, actually I'd say always, our starting point for reading the scriptures is our own perspective. You read it in English, most likely, uh, with how you grew up and what our culture is doing around us in mind. That's the perspective we read the scriptures from, and that's not bad. Um, It's all we have. But what we have to recognize is that's not the culture or customs or language that this book was written in. And so it still applies to us. But every now and then, I don't know if you've experienced this, you, you might read the scriptures and go, I have no idea not even a clue what this is about. Or that seems to mean something totally uh, contradicting another part of the scriptures. And almost always that comes down to this gap or or chasm or canyon between our culture and customs and the ones that the the scriptures were written in. And so we're going to have to kind of zoom out a little bit. I use the analogy with the, uh, the first gathering. It's like if you're going on a road trip to a hotel hundreds of miles away, and you pull out your navigation and type in the address, you don't just zoom into the hotel and look at the parking lot to figure out how to get there. You zoom out, and you go, what are the freeways and highways and the steps to get there? And then as you get closer, you zoom in. And sometimes with the scriptures, we have to do that as well. And so it's kind of going to be our approach. I didn't do this last service, and so it's not on the slides, but I'm actually just going to read um, Chapter 7, verses 1 through 30. So it's a little bit long, but I think it's going to help us because we can't really understand the scripture without understanding the whole chapter. So uh, bear with me. If I'm listening to a sermon or a teacher or when I was a student in class, I never learned anything uh, because I just learned terribly when I listen to things. So if you're like me, it probably is helpful to just pull out your phone or the scriptures and, and read it as well if listening is not helpful. But let's, let's dive into this. Chapter 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Side note, I forgot to mention this. As we are uh, reading and discussing this chapter this morning, there's really three categories of people. There's some who are kind of against what Jesus is doing. They're actually harming and hindering people from experiencing the love of God that we just sang about. There's another group that are kind of stuck in the middle, and they're not really sure which way they're going to go. They're figuring this out. 
And then there's a third group who are the ones, uh, I don't want to use the word victims, but they're the ones who are being kept from, hindered from, kept at a distance, told they don't belong from experiencing the love of Jesus. So those that are keeping people from the love of God, those who are being kept from the love of God, and then some kind of in the middle. And so the question I want us to ask this morning, each of us, is which camp or category do you fall into? And, and our initial answer is going to be, of course, not the ones keeping people from experiencing the love of Jesus. But part of the call of the church is for us to be honest. And historically, the church has done a lot of harm. And so for us as a body, as Restoration Church, I want us to honestly assess that. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you've been kept from experiencing the love of Jesus and told that, that you don't belong. And this is for you as well. So as we read this, process where you're at. Uh, they observed, uh, verse 2, that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? Jesus answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Jesus uses some harsh language to the religious leaders of the day. In verse 11, we continue, But you say, Jesus says, If a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift committed to the temple. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things, summoning the crowd again. He told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. Verse 17, when he went into the house, away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Then he said, what comes out of a person, that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts. Sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Our passage this morning, verse 24. Jesus got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to drive the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, 
Because of this reply, you may go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. I think Mark includes this account in chapter 7 of his gospel for two reasons. And I think, in all honesty, he's speaking to two different audiences. The, the gospel of Mark was written not to Jewish people. It wasn't written to people that had been Christians for generations and generations who had taught their kids about following the way of Jesus. It was written to brand new Christians, to people that weren't used to the customs and the, the ways of Jesus. It was actually written to people that were being ridiculed for following Jesus, that were constantly told, you don't belong here. They were told this by the outside world, the, the Roman culture that they were a part of, saying, why in the world would you follow Jesus when you look at all that Rome has to offer? And they were also pressured that they didn't belong by the Jewish Christians around them who were used to their own man-made customs and traditions who told them, you don't belong unless you do things our way. And so again, as we, we dive in this morning, I want to pose this to you. Which of the groups do you fall in? Have you been somebody who's hindered, whether intentionally or unintentionally, or knowingly or unknowingly, people from experiencing the love of Jesus because you put your own parameters on and, and we say, here's who deserves to be with God? Or maybe you've experienced the opposite and you've been the person who's been told you don't belong. I think Mark writes this passage to address that. The, the way I kind of want to look at this is, as I mentioned, by, by zooming out. Jesus uses some interesting language when he speaks to this woman, and it seems really harsh. And so we're going to spend some time discussing that. In, in verse 27, he said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first. It's going to be a really key word for us. Throughout the entire Old Testament, so the foundation that the scriptures are built on, there's this idea that God had a plan to save the world. He was going to restore our world from brokenness to beautiful, and he was going to do it through the nation, the family of Israel. So the plan always was Israel first, but not Israel only. Through Israel, Israel would be the foundation and the hub, and from them, the world would get to experience the love of God. But like us... Israel, God's people, this nation, they were pretty selfish, and they weren't content with this idea of Israel first. They wanted it to be Israel only. And so eventually, they really developed this, this pretty, frankly, racist culture where they hated anybody that was apart. Hated might be a strong word, although I think it was true in many cases, but at the least, they looked down on and rejected anybody of a different race, of a different ethnicity, and so Mark's writing to a group of people who are told they don't belong. And they were told that not by God, but by man-made customs created from God's people. There's this idea, Israel first, not Israel only. And we're going to have to remember that. Now I want to look at Mark chapter 7 as a whole instead of just our passage, verses 24 through 30. And as I mentioned, there's three people groups here. I want us to kind of assess those three people groups. The, the first is the Pharisees. They're Jewish, which mattered. That meant they were God's people, and they took that seriously and, and prided themselves in it. They were obsessed with religious laws and customs and rules, and they were really good at following those things. And in all honesty, the law was their God. God himself wasn't. The key for them was obeying 
They were all males, which mattered in this culture. Only the males were in the, the places of leadership and influence. They had the appearance, and that's a key word, the appearance of extreme godliness. But as we read, Jesus said, you look godly on the outside, but inside you're filthy. Because what Jesus sees is the heart. They were the cultural religious authority and leaders of the day. They were respected. When Jesus is ridiculing them in this passage, he's not doing so privately. He didn't say, hey, by the way, just so you know, we won't tell anyone else, but you're doing it all wrong. In front of a crowd, he said, you're leading people astray. He, he called them whitewashed tombs elsewhere, which was the, the comparison of, of telling everyone around them, don't follow these people because they will lead you to death. Like, stay as far away as possible. That's group one. People that were supposed to be leading the people to God, but actually more so prided themselves on keeping people away from God. The second group was the disciples. Again, they share this Jewish heritage. They were all male. They were not yet considered the religious leaders and authority of the day, but they were on their way to it. They had this rabbi named Jesus who they were following and learning and growing with, and they're kind of in the middle ground. And then the third person, the third category, is the Syrophoenician. She's a Gentile, which means she's not a part of God's family. She's a woman, so she's not really respected in this culture. She doesn't hold a position of influence. And she has a demon-possessed daughter, which is not great. So all of a sudden, there's this woman who has no respect and no influence. She's literally the least of the least. And just like in, in different ways, our culture has its own hierarchy, This culture certainly did, probably even more so than we did. This woman is on the bottom. She doesn't matter. She doesn't fit in. She doesn't belong, and she knows that. And the religious leaders, these Pharisees that Jesus calls hypocrites, they are at the top. That's how the culture viewed this moment, okay? I want to look, though, now at the words Jesus used in his conversation with them and compare it, what the world communicated to these people versus what Jesus did. First, we'll look at uh, verse 6. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. I'm going to reread beginning in verse 5, though. Uh, The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, man-made tradition, instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. He's saying, you disregard the commands of God. You keep your own traditions. He also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. Jesus is looking at them publicly saying, you don't actually care about what God cares about. You value your own thoughts and ways and approach to religion, not God's. And he does that publicly. Eventually he's killed for doing this kind of thing. Jesus speaks harshly to the greatest of the greatest in this culture. Next, we look at what he says to the disciples, I believe in verse 17. And 18, when Jesus went into the house, away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, here's our second category of people. Jesus looks at his disciples, the the guys that are spending all kinds of time to him, sleeping in the same room next to him, sharing meals with him. And then he says, are you also as lacking in understanding? What he's actually saying to them is, are you just like them? Are you really living out of the same value system that they are? Do you really not get it? 
Again, it's fairly harsh language from the greatest to the middle. And then we get to this woman and you'd expect something probably harsher. But we look at what he says in verse 29. And then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. That's different. For the first time in this passage, Mark uses this really intentional contrast that everybody can notice is different. He doesn't ridicule her response. He doesn't say, you don't understand. He doesn't ask a question about how she doesn't understand. Instead, he says, in essence, because of your faith, your daughter's been healed. That's different. The the scriptures say frequently that the greatest will become the least and the least will become the greatest. And I don't know about you, but I go sometimes, what does that mean? And here's a perfect example. There's this ladder. The greatest are the Pharisees, then the disciples, and then this woman who does not belong. And Jesus flips that ladder and says, no, she's the one that actually gets it. Because in the kingdom of Jesus, things work different. It isn't about who you are and what you've done, good or bad, or the position you hold or what you've produced. As we talked about last week, it's about the heart. Jesus cares about a heart characterized by repentance and dependence. Where do we fall in this group? I think it's easy, it's natural for us to assume that we're not the Pharisees. It's easy for us, it's natural to assume that we're not hindering anybody. Maybe our kids, maybe our friends, maybe someone in our life from experiencing the love of Jesus. But we need to ask the question, are we? Have you placed your own values, what you consider to be being a Christian above what God cares about? It's really easy to do. In fact, if if you're familiar with the, the book of Romans, we call it the book of Romans, it's actually a letter. Paul writes it to the same group, likely, that Mark wrote his gospel to. And it's really long. It's 16 chapters, and it's really, like, deeply theological. And it just dawned on me this week, the whole reason that Paul wrote that to them was to convince them that they actually belonged with Jesus, that they actually belonged with the church. And it took 16 long chapters because they were told constantly that they didn't belong. By the world, why would you follow Jesus? He's not worth anything. Because you have to exchange Roman culture and customs and this, this world of honor to follow Jesus. And that couldn't be worth it, is what they were told. Maybe you've experienced that. You decide to follow Jesus and it's exciting and good. And then you share that, maybe, hesitantly, with your family or friends and they think you're crazy. Maybe your values start to switch and all of a sudden they want nothing to do with you. And it can become lonely. And you go, okay, well, that's a trade I made. You go, at least now I have this new family, this body, this thing called the church. And then you enter the church with this great hope in the name of Jesus. And then what you're met with is totally different. It's clear that these people, this church has a really strong core. And they don't want you to be a part of it. It's really hard to get maybe plugged in. You don't belong. And no one says that, but they make it very clear unless you do the right things, hide your sin, pretend, and fit the mold that they've presented. Jesus' words to these three different people are very different than how the culture viewed them. The way he valued the three different people were very different than how the culture valued. I want to look at one other perspective 
showing differences between the three. And it's how they viewed themselves and their relationship with God. And what we see in the passage is this. The Pharisees believed they deserved God. They'd done enough good. They'd avoided the bad. They were Jewish men, religious leaders who were giving their lives to this cause. They believed they deserved God. Maybe that's how you think about your relationship with God, whether or not you deserve to be with him. Then there's the disciples kind of in the middle ground, and they were pursuing deserving God, so much so that often on the road they had arguments about who was the greatest among them, and Jesus would go, really, do you still not get it? And they didn't, because these historical roots ran deep, and they were used to fighting for their own religion, fighting for control in their place. And then there's this woman, and she knew that she didn't deserve God's love. She wasn't trying to earn God's love. She wasn't even concerned with the rules and what she should or should not do. She was in a totally different place. And I I believe that in Mark chapter 7, through Mark chapter 7, Jesus is calling us to embrace her posture of, of not deserving. Tim Keller puts it this way. I think this is a helpful picture that's so unnatural to us. He says, she's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, and I need it now. How often when we pray, are we thinking about God's character, his grace and mercy and kindness, or how often are we thinking about ours and what we need to do or not do? Austin Gentry says something similar about the same passage. He says, it's only when you realize that you have no leverage in your position before God that you will finally begin to hear and understand his voice and call on your life. Just like the Gentile woman who had nothing to offer Jesus to lean on his grace alone. Which category do you and I fall into? We still haven't addressed this issue, though, where Jesus calls her a dog. That seems like it's not healthy. And, and to understand it, I almost think of this, this situation, if you've been with a group of people and you're watching a movie together, you never stop unless you have young kids. I can never make it through a movie in one night. It never works out. It takes me like five nights because I just fall asleep. But if you don't have young kids, you never stop in the middle of the movie and go, oh, you know what? I think I understand it. Like, there's all this tension in the middle. I don't really know where it's going to go, but we're just going to leave. You don't do that. Often, though, we do that with the scriptures. And so, to to some degree, it's almost like that in Mark chapter 7. We're in the middle of the gospel, and, and, and Mark wrote this to Roman Gentiles who were used to being told, who were actually used to being called dogs. They didn't belong from all sides. There's this pressure to not stay, to not commit, to not follow Jesus. And in the middle of it, they wouldn't have stopped. They would have kept going. And so I want to read this again from that perspective. As we read this, remember, this is written to Gentiles. Mark's not writing to people that have been Christians for generations. He's writing to people who are used to being called dogs by God's people, which shouldn't happen but does. Here we go. Verse 24. He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, This is a cue for us. This woman doesn't wait until she understands everything about Jesus. She doesn't wait until she won't say something stupid. 
Immediately after hearing about Jesus, motivated by love for her daughter, she takes steps of faith. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him. Let's hang on that for a second. She kept asking him. Jesus invites us to keep asking based on his character. He doesn't say just ask once and stop, but come before him again and again and again. She kept asking him to drive the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, now, the people that received Mark's writing that he actually wrote for, they wouldn't have stopped twice here. They wouldn't be shocked that Jesus called her a dog. They wouldn't have even thought about it. They were used to it. They're about to be shocked, though. He said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying in the bed, and the demon was gone. Now, they would have been shocked in this moment, because Jesus was engaging her. Now, this is the middle of the movie. This isn't the end. So we called her a dog, but then healed her demon-possessed daughter, and everything's good. That's not what is happening. But in the middle of the movie, in the middle of the gospel, they're starting to see a new hope. Something is changing. Something is shifting in the way, excuse me, Jesus is going to be handling people. Now, as we talked about last week, this word unclean means unworthy. The Pharisees were saying, The Pharisees were deciding who was and was not worthy of God's love and communicating that to people. And what Jesus is beginning to do in this passage is say, that's not their place. I'm the one who gets to communicate who is and who isn't worthy. The the word for dog here is important. Jesus is actually doing this incredible play on words because though he calls her a dog, and they were used to that, and they wouldn't be shocked by it, the, the normal word that was used to describe dog, or to the, the type of dog that was being described when they were used to being called a dog, was a street dog. If you've ever been to Tuba, Tuba City, you know the type of dog that I'm referring to. You go to the gas station, and then you, you get out to fill up your gas, and there's like 17 dogs, and at least nine or ten of them only have three legs instead of four. And they're wrangled and bloody, and like it's not a pretty sight. That is what these people were used to being called. And Jesus takes that word, but he uses a different form of it. So here's what he's doing. He's not pretending that this wasn't a cultural reality where they were facing oppression. He's stepping right into their oppression where he knew that they were used to not belonging or being told they didn't belong. And he said, here's what you're called. But then he just changes it just a little bit. And the word he uses actually describes a dog that belonged to the home, that was fed and taken care of and was actually a part of the family. And so right in the the middle of the movie, again, if I'm using that analogy, there's this shift and everybody watching it or reading it as they're hearing about Jesus and this hope, yet they're experiencing opposition from all sides. They're going, what is happening? This is different. Jesus is changing the value system. She replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. This woman had incredible faith. 
She was told she didn't belong. I'm sure by her friends and family, why would they follow this Jewish leader? It's not their culture. The disciples in, in Matthew's account of the same story, the gospel right before, they actually look at Jesus as this woman falls to her feet and is pleading with Jesus to heal her little daughter. The disciples who would go out to express the name and love of Jesus in all the world, who actually were here because of those guys following Jesus, look at Jesus when this woman is pleading for her daughter and they go, can you please send her away? Because we have more important things to do. She doesn't belong. So, so as we, we close, I, I come to this. I don't know if there's someone or multiple people in this room that need to hear one of these two things. But we need, we owe it to one another to assess whether we've unintentionally or intentionally kept people from experiencing the love of Jesus because we've prioritized our own understanding of God rather than his. That's really serious. We're not called to be a church that hinders people from the love of Jesus. Or maybe you're a person that has experienced that and told you don't belong. Or told, first you have to get it together or stop doing this or stop doing that. And that's not the way of Jesus. Does he call us to change our habits and our actions? Yes. But he says he'll take care of that. First, we just come before him. The entire letter of Romans, the gospel of Mark, especially Mark chapter 7, was written so that you would know, no matter your past, no matter the the darkest moments that you don't want anybody to know about, no matter what good you've done, that regardless of your history, you belong here. You belong with God's people. You are loved and you are chosen because he is love. The other beautiful thing that we see as this passage closes is that this woman, who didn't understand very much, who was the least of the least, her faith mattered in that very moment. Often what we do is we we treat our faith like it's best to be put in some savings account and later we'll withdraw it and use it when we need to. Or maybe when Jesus returns, that's the moment. But we're given this beautiful example of her posture. Immediately, without understanding everything, she takes steps to follow Jesus. It says that she falls on her feet before him. When was the last time you fell at his feet and worshiped? Maybe not actually, physically, although possibly. When was the last time you had that type of posture of humility and dependence before our God? We talked last week about one of the ways how you can know that your heart is maybe a little bit pharisaical is if we speak of needing Jesus in the past tense. If you say, I needed Jesus when you talk about him in this moment, then we're not understanding because we never move on from needing Jesus. It always needs to be present tense. I need Jesus Today, just as much, if not more than ever. She falls at his feet and she keeps asking and she keeps pleading and she applies to his character. May we be a people, may we be a a church that doesn't hinder people from following and experiencing the love of Jesus because of our value system, what we think it means. May we be a people that honor repentance and dependence on Jesus, that celebrate it, that invite people in.
As you leave today, may we know that your faith and your following of Jesus matters now in this moment, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if you're told it doesn't, and that you belong in his family. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love and that your love is not attached to our actions or history or decisions. Sometimes this, this love is just something we don't understand because our culture talks to us constantly about earning. God, I pray that we as Restoration Church would not accidentally create a culture where what we value most is earning your love, but that we would just come before you and that you would overwhelm us with your love and that that would lead us to love others. Holy Spirit, may you work in our hearts and our minds in this way. May you lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a really powerful question. Um, Where have we unintentionally or potentially intentionally restricted, prohibited, or caused someone to feel or believe that they do not belong in the family of God? Where have we put ideology where have we put even theology um, that is out of our human understanding before who God actually is and who Jesus desires us to be. Um, It's easy for us culturally to buy into or live into um, traditions and things that we feel like have value and uh, something that, you know, has really been a a huge practice for me over the last couple of years is really asking myself, like, why do I do the things that I do? Why do we worship? Why do we gather? Why do we um, do or act in certain ways that we believe or feel are, quote, Christian? And um, yeah, I love that Jesus, his eyes um, see so clearly what's happening in culture and he's able to meet that moment but then peel back the layer to to move that culture forward and for the 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 greek woman um, how loved she must have felt even amidst of such an adverse culture and so yeah what a journey for us to learn to step into to press into to grow um recognizing that it truly is about the heart you can be an act perfect but if you are not filled with love if you're not filled with compassion if you are not allowing the transformation of jesus christ to renew and restore you from the inside out then then holy acts without holiness really actually are nothing more than clinging symbols so um that's that's humbling for me um, to reconcile and to work through and to grow in and and my prayer is that we each can continue to press into what it looks like um what it looks like to live a life of repentance and dependence wholly and completely on Jesus. So thankful for this morning. Thank you for uh, joining us. This is Nate Huss. I'm a part of the team here at Restoration Church. And if you'd like to learn more, please go to restorationaz.org. And as always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.